My name is Bob Cachero, and I have the joy of serving here as one of the, the pastors and to bring God's word to you this morning. This morning, we're going to be in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 6 through 10, and verses 17 through 19. Both these chapters share a common theme, and that common theme is money. And as we're going to see this morning, they're connected to each other. So let's hear from God's word first. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. So I have a question for you I want to start with this morning. What was the last thing that you bought that you really didn't need? Okay. So while you're, while you're thinking about that, and if you even need any more time to do it, Americans spend, I want to give you a stat, Americans spend $1.2 trillion, trillion with a T, each year on things they don't need. That's $4,000 for every man, woman, and child. And it's not surprising, is it? We all have stuff that we've bought that we absolutely had to have, and where is it now? Sometimes it's in a storage box in the garage collecting dust, right? And if we need proof of that, we only have to go look at our neighbors and see all the garages that the cars don't fit in. And most of us do it without giving it a second thought. But we should. You see, our desire to buy stuff, to have more things, may be symptomatic of what God calls the love of money, a much deeper heart problem. For some, the love of money is the desire to have more of it and all the stuff or experiences it can buy. For others, it's the desire to keep it for themselves because it gives them a feeling of security or, or safety or the ability to provide for themselves. In biblical terms, it's covetousness and greed. And you and I, you and I can be lovers of money. We're lovers of money because we're either unsatisfied with God's provision to us and we want more or we place our hope in it rather than God wanting to keep it for ourselves. In our passage this morning, Paul's addressing this very issue, the love of money. And he's doing it in the church at Ephesus. And Paul tells us that he wrote this letter to Timothy so that he would know how one ought to behave in the household of God. But Paul was also addressing another problem. There were false teachers who were undermining sound doctrine and leading some astray by their teaching. Paul had just finished giving Timothy instructions for the church when he returns in chapter 6 to the subject of the false teachers. 
You see, they were teaching that godliness was a means to gain, a means to get rich. Now, Paul doesn't tell us how, but the false teachers may have justified their love of money as a sign of their so-called godliness, wrongly teaching that the love of money was a positive sign of godliness. So Paul corrects that false understanding here, explaining the dangers of the love of money, essentially warning them to guard themselves against it. And I think that's how we can summarize Paul's teaching to us this morning. Paul is warning us to guard ourselves against the love of money. And that should raise a a question for us in our mind, right? Why do we need to guard ourselves from the love of money? What's so dangerous about the love of money? Well, the answer is... We need to guard ourselves against the love of money because it's dangerous to our souls. In our passage this morning, we're going to see three ways. Three ways that the love of money is a danger to our soul. The first is because it leads to sin and suffering. Let's look at verse 9 to see this. Paul writes, But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Now the but in front of the the very beginning of the verse indicates that Paul is contrasting something here. And what Paul is contrasting is is godliness with contentment in verses 6 through 8 with those who desire to be rich in verse 9. Paul's giving us a flyover view of the, of the consequences of the desire to be rich. Many think it will lead to happiness and fulfillment and joy, but Paul says no. It leads to entrapment and sin and suffering. Paul tells us that those who crave wealth fall into a temptation, into a trap like a fish lured by bait to be hooked. Those who desire to be rich fail to see money as the bait that hooks them. But that's not all. The very thing thought to bring fulfillment and joy and happiness and security is what leads to their destruction. And more than that, Paul says it leads to foolish and harmful desires. And you can can imagine this, right? Think about it. Think about the person desiring to be rich who's tempted to buy things they can't afford using credit cards. They begin to desire increasingly more to have stuff that money can buy them. And eventually they become entrapped under a mountain of credit card debt. The very thing they thought would bring them happiness has led them to financial ruin and suffering. And now maybe that's, maybe that's one of you this morning here that's sitting here today. Maybe, maybe your desire for money has gotten out of control. Maybe your purchases have too. And if you want to know, your credit card statement tells the story. Are you buying a bunch of stuff that you don't need but desire? Are you carrying a balance each month on your credit card that you can never seem to pay off? If the answer is yes, God's warning this morning is to you. 
So take heed, because that hook may already be in your mouth. Now when we get to verse 10, Paul gives a second reason the love of money is dangerous to your soul. And that's because it leads to all kinds of evils. Let's look at the first part of verse 10. Paul writes, for, or because, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. Paul's telling us here the reason why those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge them into ruin and destruction. It's the love of money. The love of money is like a gateway drug that leads to more and greater sins. And the word love of money includes the the covetous person who has an excessive desire for money and material possessions, and also the greedy person who has money but desires to keep it all. And to be clear, Paul is not saying that the love of money is the root of all evil. Rather, it is a root that leads to a bunch of other evils. He's saying at its source, the desire to be rich is a love of money which left unchecked will lead to more sin. Man, it's not hard to see how this plays out in the real world, is it? What do people do when they, when they love money? They steal. They murder. They kidnap. They commit fraud. Some like to cheat others to keep more of it for themselves. During my career as a, as a CPA, I had the unfortunate experience of watching many people try to take bogus tax deductions on their returns, all to get a little more back in their refund or to pay a little less taxes. But that's the love of money, too. That's greed. That's wanting to keep more for yourself. And that desire is so strong in us, in our hearts, that we will sin to get it. Romans 13, 7 says, pay taxes to whom taxes are owed. You see, the love of money leads to all kinds of evils. And for some of us, the love of money manifests itself as covetousness. Desire a nicer house, maybe, or a nicer car, or the latest gadget, an iPhone, or just a bunch of stuff on Amazon that we don't need. And why do we want it? Because we're sinfully discontent with God's provision in our life. We desire more. So we covet what we don't have but want. Once again, the love of money leads to a whole bunch of other evils. And for some, the love of money shows up as greed. They want as much as they can get and to keep it all. They're motivated by the security they think it provides, trusting in money, not God. Again, the love of money leads to all kinds of evils. And the third way the love of money is dangerous to our soul, and this is the worst, and so this one, take heed, is because it leads us away from Christ. Let's look back at verse 10 to see it. Paul writes, It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Now, I don't know about you, but this verse alone should convince every single one of us that the love of money is a bad idea. Paul says, for some, the love of money had so captured their hearts 
that they had wandered away from the faith and they brought it on themselves. So how does one fall away from the faith from Christ? Well, Paul calls the love of money a craving, a powerful desire that comes from our hearts. This is what makes the love of money so dangerous. And it's also how it can lead us away from Christ. You see, when we love money, our hearts crave something other than God, and we arrogantly think that we can combine the love of money and the love of God, but we cannot. We end up becoming idolaters, and money and possessions become our God. But Jesus said in Matthew 6, 24, that no one can serve two masters, for he will either hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And so it's a stark choice. God or money? And there's only one correct answer. Theologian John Stott, writing about this first, sums it up. He writes that people either renounce avarice, love of money, and their commitment to the faith, or they, take, they make money their God and depart from the faith. And the really sad part is that we do it to ourselves. Paul says these wounds are self-inflicted, that they pierce themselves with many pangs. The word picture here is that they're gruesomely and fatally impaled, gutted. Now, Paul doesn't tell us what the many pangs are, but it's reasonable to think that it includes the loss of the Christian community when they fall away from the faith. But it also could include the inevitable realization that causes despair in our hearts when we realize that materialism can never satisfy our hearts. Some have compared chasing after money and things to drinking salt water. The more you drink, the thirstier you become. You can drink as much salt water as you want. It will never quench your thirst. And God's wisdom in Ecclesiastes 5.10 tells us the same truth. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. You see, when we love money, we lead ourselves astray from the faith, either for a time showing ourselves to be backsliders, or worse, we wander away from the faith, showing ourselves to be unbelieving lovers of money masquerading as Christians. The first interrupts our communion with the Lord and garners his loving discipline. And the latter justly garners his wealth and eternal death. So I hope by now it's clear to all of us here how dangerous, how very dangerous the love of money is to our soul. It leads to more sin and suffering, and it can lead us away from the Lord. So brothers and sisters, because it's so dangerous, given that Paul's so clear on the dangers of loving money, we must take it seriously. We can't ignore this warning. We can't go home today and forget about it. And we have to ask ourselves, how can I know if I'm a lover of money?
Well, there are obvious signs, right? We said them before, stealing, cheating others, gambling. But this morning, I want to I think of a few more subtler ways that we might expose our love of money by asking ourselves a few questions. Do you give God your leftovers and not the first fruits of your labor? Do you hoard your cash, not giving it to help others or keeping so much that you're relying on it instead of God for your security? Do you spend more than you make using debt to purchase things you desire but can't afford? And here's one that... Do you spend more time shopping online than you do in God's Word? Are you more excited when you come home to open your Amazon package than to see your family? Are you tempted to define your success in terms of what you have and not what you have in Christ? And are you willing to take a job for more money, even though it will take you away from your family more often and your God-given responsibilities? Think on these things. Seriously, think on these things. Be honest with yourselves and be honest with God. Make no mistake, he already knows if you're a lover of money. Hebrews 4.13 says, And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. And the sad truth, sad truth is that many of us Many of us have money-loving hearts if we're honest with ourselves. So what must we then do? How must we then live to guard ourselves against the love of money? I think our passage today provides us with at least three principles that can help us guard ourselves against the love of money. We can pursue contentment. We can set our hope on God and not money. And we can cultivate a generous heart. So the first principle this morning is to pursue contentment. And we can see this in verses 6 to 8 of our text. Let's return there. Paul writes, But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these, we will be content. In verse 6, Paul is responding to the false teachers who were justifying their love of money by their so-called godliness, saying that godliness was a means of gain. So Paul responds, writing, yes, godliness is great gain, but not the kind of gain they claimed. It's godliness with contentment that is great gain, the lover of money is not content with what God has provided. And so he desires riches, 
which the false teachers justified as signs of their so-called godliness. But the contented Christian finds contentment not in the gifts, but in the giver. And for Paul, contentment doesn't mean stoic self-sufficiency as this word was most often used. It's not self-sufficiency, but contentment in an all-sufficient Christ. It's not found in our possessions or our circumstances, for these will always, always disappoint in the fallen world. And it's not found in our own strength. Paul says it's found in Christ. In Philippians 4, 11 through 13, we read, For I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And the contented Christian should have an eternal perspective. And we can see this in verse 7 where Paul writes, For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. Paul saying, very simply, you can't take it with you. All our stuff, all the stuff that you thought you needed, all the stuff that you bought that you did not need, zero eternal value is what Paul's saying. And all that stuff, all your money, when we die, what happens to it? We leave it all behind. You can't take it with you. Ecclesiastes 5.15 illustrates what Paul is getting at here. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again. Naked as he came, and shall take nothing for the toil of his sorry, nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. And this eternal perspective, it should influence our lifestyle as Christians, shouldn't it? Aren't we just sojourners on this earth heading towards our heavenly home? And doesn't Jesus tell us not to store up treasures on earth, but to store up treasures in heaven? And he tells us to do this with the resources that God has given us first for his glory and his kingdom, not ours. And that very provision, provision of God, we must be content with that also. In verse 8, Paul writes, but if we have food and clothing, we will be content. Paul isn't saying this is all we should have or all that we should expect. What he's saying is what's important are the necessities of life, not the luxuries of life. Food and clothing just represent the necessities. And even that, Jesus tells us, we're not to worry about, but to trust in God who knows what we need. So to sum up this first principle, when our contentment is found in Christ, in the giver, not the gifts, and we have an eternal perspective, we will find contentment in the basic necessities of life. And our love of money will fade away, helping us to guard our hearts against it. The second principle that can help us guard against the love of money is to set our hope on God and not money. We're down in verses 17 through 19 now. Let's look at verse 17 first. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. 
Now, the principle we see in this verse is that we must set our hope on God and not money. And Paul gives us two reasons for this. The first is a negative reason, that riches are uncertain. And the second is a positive reason, that everything we have comes from God. Now, for context, in verses 17 to 19, Paul is concerned with the rich in the church, but the problem of the love of money is still very much on his mind. The love of money in someone who is rich would manifest itself or show up as greediness or holding on to it tightly for security, setting their hope in it. So it's telling that Paul exhorts Timothy to command them to be generous and to not set their hope on riches. Paul here is providing a corrective for the rich to the view of wealth, the wrong view of wealth, the love of money seen in the false teachers. And now just in case you think that maybe this only applies to the, to the rich, like the Bill Gates of the world, let me, let me correct that. In the first century, there were very stark differences between the rich and the poor, and there was no middle class. And while there are still very real differences today, we also have a lot of folks in between in the middle class. So this, these principles, this principle, they apply to most, if not all of us. Now the first reason Paul gives for setting their hope on God and not money is that you can't count on riches. It's uncertain. Now Paul's not saying having wealth is bad or even having money. He's saying don't count on it for security or happiness because it's fleeting. It can be here today Gone tomorrow. Back in 1987, when I was in college, and yes, different century, we witnessed the largest one-day drop in the stock market since 1929. It was called Black Monday. Stock market collapsed 23% in one day, erasing in one day one half trillion dollars of wealth. People went to bed rich and woke up poor. Money is fleeting here today, gone tomorrow. It's foolish to put our hope on something so uncertain. And the second reason Paul gives for trusting in God and not money is that everything we have comes from him. Look at the last part of verse 17, which says, God richly provides us with everything to enjoy. It's a simple truth, isn't it? Whatever you have, your money, your things, your home, your car, whatever you have, it comes from God. So it's really foolish, isn't it, to set our hopes on riches and not the one who richly gives it to us in the first place? God's wisdom in Proverbs eleven twenty eight tells us the very same truth. Whoever trusts in his riches will fall, but the righteous will flourish like a green leaf. The righteous are those who trust in God. So let's try to summarize this second principle. We are to set our hope on God and not money. And why? Because riches are uncertain. And because God is the one who gives us all that we have. And when we love money, we set our hope on it, holding it tightly. But when our hope is set on God, we can let go of our love of money and open our hand to others. Which brings us to the third principle that can help us guard ourselves against the love of money. Cultivate a generous heart. Let's look down at verses 18 and 19. They are to do good 
to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Paul is exhorting Timothy here to charge or command the rich in verse 18 to regularly do good with what God has given them to steward by liberally sharing it with others through acts of mercy and assistance. And the verb charge in verse 17 applies to each one of these phrases, to do good, to be rich in good works, and to be generous and ready to share. So what does it mean to be rich in good works? It means there should be an abundance of generosity and good works that reflects our status as God's people who live in light of the gospel, not just occasional acts of mercy. And similarly, to be generous and ready to share implies a, an eagerness to step up and put their resources to good use helping others. One commentator describes it as readily giving, magnanimous. In contrast to the lovers of money who accumulate money and possessions and who hold tightly onto their wealth, storing up earthly treasures, the generosity of God's people, Paul says, stores up heavenly treasures for eternal life. And we can see this down in verse 19 where Paul says that they're sharing of financial resources with those in need. That generosity results in, verse 19, storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. And where our treasure is, Jesus says, our heart is. So rather than a covetous or greedy heart that loves money, that craves it, we cultivate a generous heart that loves to give what God has so richly given us to provide mercy to others. A heart that is more concerned with giving than receiving guards itself against the love of money. Now, you may be wondering how this verse works out practically or how this works out practically in your life. We don't have time to exhaust the topic this morning, but I'd like to offer you four practical things that you can begin doing today to pursue a life of contentment that will help you guard yourself against the love of money. And the first thing we need to do to guard ourselves against the love of money and pursue contentment is to live under God's word. Any practical application of pursuing contentment starts here. It has to. God has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness. And when we don't submit our lives to God's word, we lean on our own understanding of what life should be like and not God's. And that is a recipe for discontent. The second thing is live a life of simplicity. Live a life of simplicity. Let your mantra be, if we have food and clothing, we will be content. Focus on the necessities of life and not the luxuries of life. Don't fill your life with stuff you don't really need. And follow the words of our Lord. Don't store up earthly treasures. Store up heavenly treasure. Jesus said, be on guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And number three, 
Live with gratitude for God's provision in your life. Live with gratitude for God's provision. Scripture teaches that every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights. That's God. So cult a heart, a heart of gratitude by thanking God daily for what he has so graciously given you, both materially and spiritually in Christ, rather than lamenting what you don't have. Whatever we have comes from him, and it is he who knows what we truly need. So in gratitude, rest and trust in his provision. And number four, Live within what God has given you to steward. We pursue contentment when we live within what God has provided, and we often think that we need and deserve more than he has provided. That means we're not content. It's a sure, and a sure sign of this is spending more than you earn. So there's a sub-point to this one. And it's a very simple thing, and it may seem overly simplistic to some of you. But don't spend more than you earn. You'd be surprised how many people do. Many spend more than they make using a credit card. They want to buy things they desire, but they can't afford it. So they use credit. But let me be clear. God never tells us to borrow to buy the latest iPhone or that outfit your covetous heart desires if we don't have the cash to pay for it. Which leads to the second sub-point. Don't buy things on a credit card unless you can pay it off each month. It's the easiest way to spend more than you make. And eventually, it leads to sin and suffering, to ruin and destruction, because God's word warns us that eventually it will enslave us. Proverbs 22.7 warns us that the borrower can become the slave of the lender. So in our passage this morning, we've seen a warning. A warning that we have to listen to and take heed of. God warns us to guard ourselves against the love of money because it's dangerous to our soul. It's a gateway drug to all kinds of evils. We think it leads to happiness, but it only leads to temptation, to sin and suffering. And if we don't heed this warning, if we don't heed this warning, it can lead us away from Christ. And the scary thing is that many of us here today have money-loving hearts. So guard against it. Pursue contentment. Set your hope on God and not money. Cultivate a generous heart. Destroy the root, the love of money in your heart by putting off covetousness and greed and putting on godliness, repenting of every sinful desire. Now, we never want to reduce God's word to simply do this, not that, or you're doing it wrong, now do it better, right? We never want to do that apart from God's grace. And our only hope, our only hope of guarding ourselves against the love of money and rooting out the sin is found in Jesus and the gospel of grace. So if you're a believer and you found this morning that maybe you love money a little too much, I want you to remember four things this morning. 
There is forgiveness for your sin of loving money. 1 John 1, 9, God reminds us that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And there is strength from God to mortify your sin of loving money because the Spirit of God powerfully works in you to make you more like Jesus. And there is a certain hope to be free of your sin of loving money in the promises of God who will bring to completion the good work that he began in you. And there is help to turn from your sin of loving money from God's people. If you're struggling with love of money this morning, someone will be over here to pray with you at the conclusion of the service. And if you're really struggling and need help, please come find one of your elders and talk to them. And remember the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that, by, that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Let's pray. Almighty and loving God, we praise you for your living and active word this morning. Your word, Lord, makes wise the simple and pierces our soul like a sword, discerning the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. We praise you for your perfection and your, your beauty, Lord. You alone are worthy of the worship and love of our hearts. But God, as we heard today, we can have adulterous hearts setting our, our love on riches and possessions rather than you. Help us, O oh Lord, to guard ourselves against the love of money and the myriad of sins that the love of money brings forth from this evil fountain and protect us from ourselves and our inordinate desire for the things of the world. And God, I lift up my, my brothers and sisters in Christ this morning that may be struggling with the love of money, and I pray that you would give each of them strength to live out what they have heard here this morning from your word and grant them divine help. Help them when they are not content to find their contentment in you and rest in your loving provision, trusting that you will provide what they truly need. And help us to set our hope on you, Lord, and not on our money or possessions and, and to cultivate hearts that are generous and ready to share what you have so graciously provided to help others and so store up heavenly treasure in our lives. God, we thank you that in your love and mercy you have saved us by the blood of Jesus and made us your children and we thank you for your spirit which works powerfully in us to make us more like him helping us to overcome sins like love of money and to grow in godliness. Thank you for being faithful to your promises and the confidence that we have, knowing that you will finish the good work you began in each one of us. In Jesus' name, amen.